Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, first day back. Are we ready to leave? School shoes on? Check. Coats and bags? Check. Smile on Aoife's face? Check. Smile on Sean's face? Check. Huge smile on Mum's face? Oh, yes! Woohoo! Let's go! School bags and school shoes from Littlewoods, Ireland. Back to school victory celebration from Mum. From Nike to Clark's, find the back to school brands you love at littlewoodsireland.ie. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. Count down three, two, one. In my head, it goes, let it rip. Like Beyblade. What's Beyblade? Three, two, one, let it rip. It was Beyblade. It was those things that were like little spinning tops that were on strings and you would pull the string and they would spin really fast. It was an anime. Mm-mm. You didn't have brothers. No. Hi, Not everyone. Hi, guys. Did How you are... watch Beyblade? Did you? No, you didn't because you had a life. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, I'm just feeling a lot of emotions. It's a weird time. We're feeling weird. I just don't, I don't like not knowing. Yeah. Look, my life is like turned upside down in the span of like a week. Like this time last week, I was like planning the future, like, you know, thinking about, you know, like career stuff and like uni and like I had a really fun field trip like coming up and all these things. Now I'm unemployed, um, possibly homeless, like, and this was not the case like a week ago. So Mm-mm. it's a, it's, it's a pretty big mental adjustment. Yeah. I hope you guys are all looking after yourselves mentally as much as you possibly can. It's okay uh-huh. to feel anxious and scared. I literally can't stop crying. Um, so yeah, now the Mitlu Mini, is that what it's called? Mitlu Minis? Mitlu Minis, is that cute? Mitlu Minis. Um, it's a, it's an Ellen Mini, so we know what that means. It's an Ellen Mini, so it's a maxi, (laughs) but it's shorter than my usual ones. And if I say it really quickly, it'll probably be. And we've got other content that we need to get out tonight, so. I got a lot of sugary things to eat to get us through because it's going to be a it's going to be a late one. Can I get deep fried eggplant? Ooh. No, you can't get deep fried eggplant because every time you order food, we end up waiting to record anything until your food gets there. Until after you eat the food, then it adds well, extra forty-five minutes. Well, that's the thing. If we minutes. order it now, by the time we finish this episode, okay. You look at your phone while I'm speaking most of the time, anyway. So you order your Uber Eats. I'll record the content. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> this is what Sharona is doing to us, okay? It's a lot. Anyway. It's turning friends against each other. Oh, God. No, it's fine. Yes, it's a me, Mario. It's a, it's a me, Ellen. So um, we've um, really, like, talked up for the past month or so about how my mini-sode was going to be the Canberra one that I've been talking about for a long time. <laughs> I decided not to do that one. And, I, like, when she told me that, I was just like, lol. <laughs> the thing was is that I started, like, cracking on the research, and by the time, like, I was 10 minutes in, I had about 25 tabs open, <laughs> and some of them were, like, 350-page long, like, inquest documents and stuff like that, and I was like, this is not this is not mini this is not going to be a mini. And so we'll, we'll save it for the we'll next save content. It. We'll do it sometime, although I feel like this is going to be like a community channel with a Lamingtons kind of situation where we're just never going to do it. What's community channel with the Lam- Lamingtons? You know community channel, yes. Natalie Tran. Yes. She said she was going to make a Lamingtons video in like 2004 and she still hasn't done it and she doesn't <laughs> even make YouTube videos anymore. Yeah, I miss her. She was funny. I miss her too. She posted a video the other day and I cried. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> Rona's bringing back everybody. All right, it's making making everybody um making everybody freak out. So Tristan's other case, which also uh, didn't happen in Australia. Oh, great! So it's an, not only did it not happen in the nation's capital, it didn't even happen in the nation, but it happened to an Australian. Oh, so this is the story of Antarctica's only murder, possibly. <laughs> Jess has her head in her hands. This is the most Ellen case that could ever have been chosen. You have Zane is no doing, idea. Zane, Ellen's doing <laughs> Antarctica's only murder. <laughs> so uh, at the start of my, my script is a little paragraph about why I chose this case. And now I'm not going to read it because Jess has already made fun of me. Oh, read it. <laughs> no, I can't now. No, but I yes. do really love... You have no idea how how me this case is going to be, which is a very odd thing to say about a murder case. But once I get into it, you'll know. I had known about this case for a while. It interested me for a while. It has to do with Antarctica, which is a subject that I love. I've read South. I'm currently reading a book about uh, Australia's, well, Tasmania's, well, the Antarctic Division's recently retired ice-breaking ship, the Aurora Australis. It's very good. We're getting a new ship. I have mis- mixed feelings about it. I go down to the docks, like, is the Aurora, Aurora Australis in winter used to, like, dock, like, down at the Hobart docks, and, like, I would literally just, like, stand near it and look up at it and just be like, that big old orange boat has been to Antarctica. <laughs> My uncle worked at the Antarctic Division, and when I was 14, I came to Tasmania, and we went to the Antarctic Division, and I got to dress up in the Antarctica clothes, and they took a picture <laughs> of me on, like, a green screen with, like, ice and, like, penguins in the back. <laughs> It was my mice. It was my MySpace profile picture for like three and a half years. Can you please send that to me? No, I don't have it anymore. All my MySpace pictures are gone. Why? Because MySpace is gone. Bloody Rona. Anyway, I'm a big fan of Antarctica. I'm also a big fan of space, which this episode is also about. So this combines two things that I really like with murder, which is something that I'm interested in but can't truly say that I like, and mm-hmm. also the victim in this case is somebody who I truly think that I would have just like smashed a beer with after work and just had a good old time with. He was such a top bloke. This case is really sad. It made me cry. I'm very excited to share the story with you. So this is the story about the death of Rodney Marks. 
So Rodney was born in a small coastal town near Geelong, Victoria on the 13th of March, 1968. And he was a very smart kid. So he was offered a scholarship to a fancy private school in Geelong when like he was going to primary school. And when he went to uni, he studied maths and science, graduating with a Bachelor of Science first class honours from the University of Melbourne. And then he went on to study a PhD in physics from the University of New South Wales. And his PhD thesis was about the suitability of sites at the South Pole for astronomical observations. So he basically like did all of these like calculations and shit about like the the temperature and the atmosphere and stuff to pinpoint like where like the best spots on the South Pole were to whack a big old telescope. Um, and as well as being extremely smart, Rodney was like a very cool dude. So he used to be a goth. He was a former goth. <laughs> on brand. On brand. Uh, and he had like a bohemian kind of sensibility and sense of style. He had long hair. He sometimes uh, had like painted black fingernails. He loved to listen to 90s alternative music. And he played guitar in a heavy metal band called The Changelings. Um and he was a bit of a drinker. He didn't mind a few after-work beverages. You're blushing. I am a little bit. But he's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the good ones are dead. <laughs> um, but friends and co-workers described him as witty, cool, and sometimes soft-spoken with a dry sense of humor some people misunderstood at first. But the number one thing that people recognized about Rodney was that he was just incredibly smart. He was just brilliant. So when he first approached uh, who would become his PhD supervisor, Dr. Michael Ashley at the University of New South Wales, about future PhD projects, Dr. Ashley was like, oh, I know of one um, working on microthermal measurements of the atmosphere in the South Pole which is what Rodney ended up doing, but it was in collaboration with the University of Nice. So the person who did it would have to speak French, which Rodney didn't, but he moved to France within six weeks and he started a language course and he was fluent in French within a couple of months. Like he was true, like full on genius. Like, so Rodney first overwintered in Antarctica in the 1997 to 1998 seasons. So in terms of demographics, scientific research in Antarctica is a bit of a melting pot with lots of different researchers from lots of different countries staying at different bases that are owned by different countries on land that is also owned by different countries. So it's a big old melting pot, just kind of all kinds of people from all over the place. So Rodney Rodney was Australian, but he was working for the Americans at the National Science Foundation's Center for Astrophysical Research in Antarctica, which was known as CARA for short. And he was working on the South Pole Infrared Explorer Project, or SPIREX, because it's not science if you don't have a catchy little acronym for whatever you're working on. So the SPIREX, the SPIREX telescope was an interesting kind of... I try really hard to, like... I was like, I'm going to seem so smart if I go and, like, explain, like, what this telescope thing does and, like, why it was important and shit, but I didn't understand it. I read, like, the longest journal article in the world about, like, infrared astronomy and I don't understand it. But what <laughs> what it, like, what it ends up resulting in is that, like, because of, like, because of how clear the air is in Antarctica and because of the temperature and stuff like that, it means that if you place a telescope there, you can kind of get, like, wavelengths from space and, like, receive them to almost, like, the same like, same depth as if you were viewing them from, like, a space telescope, like the Hubble Space Telescope or something like that. So, 
obviously it's much cheaper to whack a telescope in Antarctica than it is to whack one up in the sky and you can like maintain it and shit like that. So it's actually like an extremely like cool project and everything to be working on. So that's what this shit was about. Right. So yes, he did his first overwinter working on this project. Um, and overwintering in Antarctica is like not done that often. Not that many people do it. Most research is undertaken in summer because obviously it is freezing. So the average uh, winter temperature in the South Pole is negative 60 degrees Celsius. So, you know, this guy is like down in the South Pole. It's negative 60 degrees outside. He's doing like complicated maths and stuff. I was trying to teach my, like remind myself how to find like the hypotenuse of a triangle and like doing like cos sine tan shit for oh god like before we were recording this episode have you got and a graphics I s- calculator no i don't have a graphics calculator i was like fucking crying i was like i don't know how to do this this guy is doing something 50,000 times more complicated in a negative 60 degree weather for 8 months at a time it's completely uh-huh. dark like bad ass motherfucker like don't know how anybody survives it um And there's actually like a condition that people, that Antarctic researchers get, which is called winter over syndrome that kind of manifests in like a range of behavioral issues like irritability, depression, insomnia, aggression, and strangely irritable bowel syndrome. Like the- Not fun. Not fun, especially in Antarctica. Like I don't know like what the setup is there, but I feel like that's not a place you want IBS. No. Um. But so it's it's really mentally and physically taxing, like, being there in those conditions. But Rodney loved it so much. So he did this first project, and then he came back to Antarctica again in 2000 to do another overwinter. And this time he was working on the Antarctic Submillimeter Telescope and Remote Observatory, which has the acronym of ASTRO. Very cool. Very good. Very good. Like, you want to be working on ASTRO, you know? Hi, sorry, I'm working with ASTRO. Hi, sorry, I'm working on the Project ASTRO. I'm an astrophysicist. (laughs) (laughs) So this telescope was, like, even better than the other one. It measured, like, sub-millimeter wavelengths, and it was positioned uh, a kilometer away from the South Pole Station in a region that was literally known as the Dark Sector, um, which is, like, that's where Darth Vader lives, right? Um, But it is an area that had, like, particularly low light and radio noise pollution, and, yeah, so... The goal of the project was to undertake, quote, heterodyne spectroscopy of atomic and molecular clouds in the Milky Way and nearby galaxies. All I got was Milky Way. Milky Way cloud, what's up there, question mark. (laughs) So Rodney's job was basically to coordinate the experiments that the telescope in the project was doing and to collect data on the viewing conditions. So he was in charge of running the equipment, recording all the data, doing everything basically. Mm Mm-hmm. Rodney was a really popular bloke on the base and, you know, as well as research, he was very committed to having a good time. As I mentioned before, he was always down for, for after work beers. They have a bar at the Admonson Scott research station on the South Pole. Um, and he had no kind of snobbishness when it came to who he hung out with. So he drank with like the crew and the maintenance guys and everything, as well as all the scientists. Mm-hmm. He was known to be a bit of a drinker and he would sometimes use alcohol as a way to manage his Tourette syndrome, which he experienced mild symptoms of. Um, he was a member of the bass band, which was called Fanny Pack and the Big Nancy Boys, which I'm they sure is a, a very... They had a band. And he was dating Sonia Walter, who was a fellow bandmate and a maintenance specialist on at the station. Oh, don't date someone from the band, mate. From the band, who is also your co-worker. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a double no. 
But so Sonia, like, Sonia was, like, spending the summer in Antarctica and, like, her and Rodney, like, met. And then she decided to extend, like, her contract in Antarctica to stay over winter, to stay with Rodney. No matter how cute the guy was, I would never, ever stay longer than I had to on Antarctica. (laughs) That is the realest love. Like, that is the realest, truest love And we will never know it because we... No. I'm not staying. Like, I love Antarctica and, like... There's no way. <laughs> There's no way. Not in a million um, billion years. Not in a million billion years. But for the winter, he dyed his hair purple and Sonia's hair bright green. So just this cute little alternative couple wandering around Antarctica being like, oh, what's that? A discovery of a new galaxy? Don't mind if I do. Let me write it down in my notebook. Like, tr- minus the freezing cold dream life. <laughs> So on the 11th of May 2000, Rodney had been walking from one of the research buildings to the main base at the station when he began to feel unwell. So he was struggling to breathe and his vision was becoming blurry. He was overtaken with fatigue and decided to go to bed early, hoping to sleep the sickness off. But Rodney's condition worsened overnight. He woke up at 5.30am on May 12th and began to vomit blood. Stomach burning, knowing that he was seriously unwell, he went to see the base physician, Dr. Robert Thompson. He had to wear sunglasses to protect his eyes because they were so sensitive, despite the near-total darkness that engulfs Antarctica in May. So Dr. Thompson was stumped when he examined Rodney. Nothing seemed to explain his symptoms, nor their sudden onset. (gasps) Dr. Thompson, just don't. You always do this. Let (laughs) me tell the story. Dr. Thompson was considering a helmet. Stop stop it. (laughs) I went to talk to one of my coworkers at work today and I like came up close to her and she put her hand out like that and goes, one meter. (laughs) (laughs) And I took several steps backwards. She was right to do it. She was social distancing, folks. Um So Dr. Thompson was considering ailments like alcohol withdrawal and anxiety to explain Rodney's condition, but they didn't quite, like, fit. So Dr. Thompson ended up administering a sedative to Rodney, who was distressed and in severe pain. And this calmed him down enough to allow him to return to his own bed, where he lay with Sonia for a while, with a brief, the painkillers being a brief respite from the pain. Then he began to get worse again. He began vomiting blood, and he couldn't control his breathing, which was coming in painfully fast and shallow. In the grips of total panic, he went again to see Dr. Thompson. So Rodney's distress was so evident and so extreme that Dr. Thompson injected him with Haldol, an antipsychotic. Rodney lay down, his breathing stabilized. He's vomiting blood, like, anyway. Yeah, he's, yeah, and his eyes closed. Perhaps at this moment, Dr. Thompson thought that anxiety really was the cure for Rodney's illness. It seemed like he was getting better. Then Rodney's heart stopped beating. A trauma team made up not of real doctors but workers on the station, volunteer scientists and crew members who had received some emergency training, were summoned. Darren Schneider, Rodney's close friend and the only other Aussie on the base, held a ventilator mask over his friend's face, desperately trying to get him to breathe properly again. But despite their best efforts, Rodney took a last shuddering breath and died. It was just before 6pm and his girlfriend Sonia was right by his side. So there's no way to leave Antarctica in the winter. So boats can't penetrate through the deep sea ice, um, even like specially built ice-breaking ships like the Aurora Australis. It's too cold for planes to fly in or land as the fuel literally freezes in the sub-zero temperatures. So Rodney would have to stay in Antarctica until the summer. A group of Rodney's friends made him a casket. It was a labor of love and took them way longer than they thought. Rodney's funeral wouldn't be held until early July, but they constructed it out of oak wood, egg crate bedding foam, tablecloths, bronze bearings, and other bits and pieces. 
they made a plaque inscribed to him inlaid with the constellation of Scorpio. A group had gone out earlier and dug a temporary grave near the geographic pole in negative 75 degrees Celsius weather. Everyone at the station helped to bring the casket to the gravesite. They paid their respects, shared their memories of Rodney, and then they had to return to work. Dave Pernick, one of Rodney's friends on the base, sent a message back to Kara talking about Rodney's death. The final sentence of the message was, This place is harsh, but in its extremes there is also beauty. The aurora and incredible sky can be amazing. And now our friend is laid to rest, albeit temporarily, under that sky. I'm crying. A statement was released by the National Science Foundation saying that Rodney had died of natural causes. Dr. Thompson had suspected a heart attack or some kind of stroke, but he was just a regular doctor, not a medical examiner or pathologist, so he couldn't conduct an autopsy to establish cause of death. An autopsy wouldn't happen until the 30th of October, when the warmer weather meant that finally Rodney's body can be flown to Christchurch, New Zealand. So as I kind of mentioned earlier, the circumstances surrounding who precisely was responsible for Rodney's death in terms of who was going to because of like what country take over. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay. So he was an Australian citizen and resident working for an American organization on an American research station on land that was owned by New by Zealand. By New Zealand. So right. responsibility for the whole situation was kind of hot potatoed around until New Zealand ended up taking responsibility. So Dr. Martin Sage examined Rodney's body and discovered something shocking. Rodney hadn't died from a stroke or heart attack, but from methanol poisoning. He had somehow ingested 150 milliliters of pure methanol. So methanol is in pretty good supply in Antarctica because it's a good strong alcohol used for cleaning scientific equipment. And its freezing point is around negative 93 degrees Celsius. So you can like take it on out and do whatever you want with it and it's not going to freeze. Um, it's something that Rodney would have used frequently to clean equipment and he would have known that it was poison. Dr. Sage's words in his report were frank and unapologetic. Rodney's symptoms had been caused by acute acidosis. His body metabolized the methanol into formic acid, which destabilized the pH levels of his blood. How exactly Rodney came to ingest almost a wine glass worth of poison, Dr. Sage a didn't speculate on. A wine glass worth of methanol? A wine glass worth of methanol. Ooh, no. But Dr. Sage said that there was, quote, a distinct possibility that Rodney didn't realize he had drunk the methanol. So Rodney's family, his girlfriend, his friends, and everybody back left on the base was wondering the same thing. How exactly had Rodney died? Nobody could believe it was suicide, particularly the people who had been living with him at the base. Even, like, you know, you you always say, like, oh, he seemed so happy before he died. Like, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But even taking away the fact that he seemed happy at the time, Rodney had been making plans for the future. He was getting serious with Sonia. Like, they are talking about getting married. He was very invested in his worth, work. He was super passionate about the project. And he was on track to, like, get a really, really good job. Like, all the research and everything that he was doing would set him up for, like, a really, really great job once he was finished. Um, he'd also sought medical treatment as soon as he began to feel ill. And was puzzled and distressed by his symptoms, yeah. which is not really the actions of somebody who's if knowingly he just ingested drank methanol, poison. He would have just, mm. and he was like, he was really distressed, like he was confused with what was happening to him. He was really unwell. You know, if he was in that much pain, like he could have just said, "Hey, doc, I've done this. Fix me up." You know, he wouldn't have lied or pretended that he didn't know what was happening to him. And people couldn't believe that he'd drunk it accidentally either. So as I said, methanol was present at the station, but not like sitting right next to the bottled water or whatever. Rodney was a big drinker. So one theory was um, that he had tried to distill his own liquor and methanol is like produced in the distilling process. So he could have, you know, drunken that by mistake. But 
you know, as I said, there was a there's a well-stocked bar at the station um, that Rodney was a frequent attender of. And although he was a big drinker, he wasn't really like an alcoholic. Like he, like he was, one of his friends described him as like a binge drinker. Like when he drank, he drank a lot. But it was not like it wasn't like every day. It wasn't every day, and sometimes no. he would drink to help like manage Tourette syndromes. But it was more of like a shot of vodka before you do a speech kind of thing. Yeah, not yeah. like flask a hooch to get through the day kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it was beginning to seem more and more like the only rational explanation was that somebody had purposely given the methanol to Rodney. So methanol is odorless and tasteless. Slipped into a drink, alcoholic or otherwise, Rodney wouldn't have suspected a thing. Oh, I don't like that it's tasteless. I don't like that. That's <laughs> going to make me question every beverage that anyone's you ever drank. Ever. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's not impossible that, you know, if somebody buys a round of drinks for everybody at the bar, slips a little something extra into Rodney's drink. But this possibility meant accepting that somebody out of the 50-person team at the Admonson Scott station was a murderer. And also it was months ago. Yeah, exactly. So there's no way to find out. So, you know, it's taken all this time to get to the autopsy point of view. It would take another eight years for the coronial inquest to be finalised. I don't like this. So in September of 2008, coroner Richard McElroy determined that Rodney Marks, quote, died of acute methanol poisoning, the methanol overdose being undiagnosed and occurring one to two days earlier. No determined could truly be made on how the methanol was delivered. The coroner thought suicide was unlikely, accidental ingestion equally so. He floated a third possibility that he, quote, drank methanol through a third person's actions, either in the form of a prank or with a more sinister motive. So there are lots of things discussed in this report. Um, firstly, the standard of care provided by Dr. Thompson was put into question, in particular in relation to a, diagnoc- a diagnostic machine that was available at the um, medical center at the base called an ectochem, which is used to like analyze blood chemistry. So the machine was present in the medical facilities at the time, but it had a problem where, due to a fault in its lithium battery, it had to be recalibrated after every use, a process that could take between 8 to 10 hours. So, you know, every time you whack a bit of blood in there, it's another day, basically, until it works again. Dr. Thompson said that he was, quote, too busy providing critical care to Rodney to worry about using the Ectochem machine. And in Dr. Thompson's point of view at the time his symptoms didn't seem to be resulting from anything like poisoning or anything else that would be diagnosed by a blood chemistry analysis then why would he think it was anxiety if he's vomiting blood like i think probably because that's the kind of thing that most of the time he was diagnosing right anxiety like severe anxiety and that's why i mentioned before the winter over syndrome that Mm -hmm. like manifests in like all of these behavioral problems like ronnie was really distressed and he was hyperventilating and things like that he had things that can also be symptoms of like anxiety and panic attacks and stuff like that but on top of that he had the blurred vision Mm -hmm. and you know blood in his vomit and everything like that so I don't necessarily think that you know if you see 50 people who are experiencing anxiety symptoms like to that severity or anything like that it's not impossible to think that it's that it's a bit of that like think think horses not zebras kind of thing like if somebody's coming in breathing heavily that's and a quote like from that. lauren at svu and also house and i also think it's just a general like <laughs> saying no but i heard it on svu the other day anyway continue yes so anyway the the key thing was though that if he did use this ectochem machine um they his, would have figured out that- his condition would have been diagnosed 
almost straight away and then he would have been able to be treated because this the treatment for methanol poisoning if you catch it is pretty simple you just inject them with ethanol and it like neutralizes i guess right um so in July of 2000, only a couple of months after Rodney had died, a team of medical experts led by Gerald Katz, who worked for the National Science Foundation's polar logistics contractor, Raytheon Polar Services, that was a very long sentence, I apologize, reviewed Dr. Thompson's notes and determined that, quote, additional laboratory investigation was needed. So all these doctors were not super satisfied with the way that Dr. Thompson had done things. Right. As the coroner noted in his findings, the report was not provided to the investigation by um, the National Science Foundation, even after the repeated insistence of the chief investigator, Detective Senior Sergeant Grant Wormald. So the NSF and also Raytheon Polar Services were not very forthcoming about any information into Rodney's death. So McElria said that, quote, the New Zealand police carried out as effective an investigation as possible, given the legal, diplomatic and jurisdictional hurdles that arose. So one of the main problems, as we mentioned earlier, actually, with determining the cause of death was the time between when Rodney died and when his body was eventually examined. As his death was thought to be natural, no one was questioned about their whereabouts or about any of the circumstances leading up to Rodney's death, even things like was he seeming sad at the time or anything like that. So uh, Detective Wormold badgered the NSF for three years before they agreed to... So he didn't even have a list of people who had been working on the base at the time. So the NSF wouldn't give him information about who had been working there. Um, So he kept on asking, asking, asking. And eventually the NSF relented and they gathered um, information from people in the form of an optional questionnaire that was completed by only 13 people out of the 49 that were staying at the Edmonton Scott station well, with Rodney. Well, that's not good enough. No. This is also eight years later, so you can imagine that all these people were scattered to the winds, you know, and you wouldn't even necessarily, like, be saving all that memory in your mind bank about, you know, some person that you think just died of a heart attack yeah. eight years ago, you know. So, um, in the course of his own investigation, it had become apparent to Detective Wormold that the NSF had conducted its own investigation. So, Wormold wanted the report from the NSF to support his findings, but they wouldn't hand it over. So, eventually, um, Dr. William Silver, who had been one of the medical experts who reviewed Dr. Thompson's notes, and another man named Harry Mayer, who was a health and safety officer for the NSF, came forward to assist Wormald's investigation. So they gave him information about what was going on from the NSF side. So um, Dr. Silva gave him information, like he gave him the notes that they had made about the report and like demonstrated that medical opinion suggested that Dr. Thompson had prob- probably not provided adequate care to Rodney. And then Harry Mayer swore in an affidavit that the NSF had done certain investigative things like um, testing containers at the base to see if they had been correctly marked as methanol and seeing that out like if alcohol testing alcohol bottles to make sure what was inside them matched the label. Dr. Wormold himself tested a bottle of toaster juice which was the nickname given to the home-brewed alcohol made at the station but although Wormold found that it was a very toasty 71% alcohol it was not the source of the methanol. Wormald said that neither the NSF nor Raytheon Polar Services disclosed the entirety of the findings from their own private investigations to the coroner, despite all of the, despite literally eight years of investigation from Detective Wormald and the New Zealand police, they never handed anything over. 
they got involved with the U.S. State Department. The State Department was like, we are carrying out the investigation to our abilities. Like, we're not obligated to hand stuff over to you. It was this whole, like, international drama, really. Mm. So the stonewalling of the investigation plus the passage of time led to an inconclusive finding from the coroner. It could be determined that Rodney had died from methanol poisoning, but the how and why would remain unknown. And 20 years after Rodney's death, the case is no closer to being solved. Time has marched on. The Astro, the telescope that Rodney had been working on at the time of his death, has been replaced with a new model, the 10mm South Pole Telescope, which doesn't have a catchy acronym. Mm. The Admonson Scott Station has been totally replaced with a $150 million upgrade, and Rodney Marx has made the history books, not for his scientific discoveries, but for being one of a handful of people who have died in Antarctica. Exactly why the NSF was so secretive with their investigation is not officially known, although one would expect it was either to avoid culpability or to hide the fact that an Antarctic research base was apparently positively flowing with hooch, both licit and illicit. Rodney Mark's parents have mostly come to terms with the fact that they will never really know what happened to their son. And while the possibility of murder is sort of frequently both online and in trashy true crime podcasts like ours, the reality is that all of the explanations... Well, you know, we're a bit sensationalist. Um, The reality is is that all the explanations for Rodney's death are equally unlikely. Murder doesn't make sense, neither does suicide, but how could a certified genius like Rodney just accidentally drink a beyond fatal dose of methanol? So I wanted to conclude with a quote. So there is a page at southpolestation.com, which has been archived from the old Cara website, which is filled with, like, memories and tributes to Rodney from those who knew and worked with him. Mm-hmm. So every single one of them will make you cry. They're all extremely sad. They give you a really good picture of what kind of a person that Rodney was. And there are people who were, like, his best friends and the people who only, like, interacted with him once or twice who, like, left a message for him on this page. Yeah. And I wanted to quote one from a man who is named uh, Paolo Calise, who is a colleague from the University of New South Wales, who admitted that he didn't even know Rodney that well. But his short message concluded with this sentence, which was translated slightly awkwardly awkwardly from Italian, which I think really kind of sums up this whole case for me anyway. Let me say that to die while doing what we like and wish ourselves is better than to die even older, disappointed from life. You know, Rodney, like, he was living out his dream, you know. It's so... (laughs) This case makes me really, really sad because it's just you know, all, all, everything that we talk about makes me sad, really. But, you know, it's hard to think about somebody who has just, like, finally achieved something that he had wanted to achieve for so long and somebody who was just loving his life and, you know, everything being lined up and starting to work out for him and having his life cut short so tragically by murder or by whatever. Like, it's just heartbreaking. But, you know, he was doing what he loved in like one of the most incredible places on the planet, you know, looking out beyond our planet into galaxies that you and I are never going to look at. I think that is wonderful. And this case makes me really sad. And that's it. Oh, Ellen, <laughs> you're so sad. I am sad. It makes me sad. Oh, darling. That's so sad. I thought you were going to, I thought we we had some like, I thought there was going to be like a conclusion, but there wasn't. And we know how I feel about Unsolved. (laughs) I'm not a fan. Jess doesn't like Unsolved, which is fine. But That's really tragic. I mean, 
I it does from what you've said, it doesn't really sound like it would have been something that he did at his own hand. It just doesn't. It none of it makes sense. It just doesn't make sense from any point of view. And I just feel like saving, you know, somebody finding like CCTV footage or something like that, we're never going to find out because you just can't make a deduction mm. from the evidence that's available. His poor family. Oh, and his poor I know. girlfriend. That's just awful. I know. Imagine being like, yeah, your dad and I met when we were working in Antarctica. Like, he just seemed like such a great guy. Like, I read so many things that people had said about how wonderful he was and how, like, fucking smart he was. Mm. And, you know, you think about the kinds of things that he could have discovered. You know, who knows where we would be, like, as a society if he was still alive. Oh, that is so sad. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that long of an episode from me. No, oh god, I I thought we were, I, I don't I don't know what I thought, but that you know that was very short for you. Thanks, I tried. Well, stunning work. Um, a very on brand Ellen case. <laughs> um, so guys, we have recorded the two mini episodes together. Um, just with everything that's going on at the moment with the pandemic, depending on what is safe about recording and stuff like that, we're not entirely sure about what's going to happen. Obviously, we'll keep you like informed, like on the socials and stuff like that. Um, but God willing, like in two weeks' time, we'll see you for another normal episode for at the beginning of like our next season of Mitlu. Mm-hmm. Um, there, if you are starved for content uh, there, you can become a Patreon. Um, the link is in the show notes as normal. We've got lots of cases, backlog of cases. Like when you become a Patreon, you don't get to just listen to the Patreon episode that like from when of you that subscribe, day, like yeah. there's, there's like a backlog of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, and you know, also supporting like us as, artists at the moment would be great because we're all in a quite a precarious position but also if you're in a precarious position oh, if you're in a precarious position we totally don't understand. even think about no, no, no. it don't even but think about it save that money for toilet paper and canned soup but if you aren't and you are in a position feel free but if you're not totally okay um we have merchandise available that you can purchase that goes to supporting our podcast um Please stay safe, wash your hands, do the right thing, stay indoors when you can. If you do need to go out to work, that's fine. I know I was feeling a bit like I didn't feel like I was being judged by people that were out because obviously they were out as well. But, you know, I I have to work. I have to go out at the moment. So totally understand that as well. But just don't go – don't do stupid things and just be mindful. I was at work and people like buying clothes and stuff and I was like, what are these people doing here? Go home. Like go home. Yeah. Just, just go home. If you can go home, go home. Yeah. If you can't go home, I'm sorry for you. I also can't go home. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Cool. So we hopefully we'll see you on another fortnight. Um, wash your hands, stay safe, and goodbye. Bye. That's Not Canon is a community committed to giving new podcasters a platform to share their voices and have some fun. If you would like to get started podcasting or simply enjoyed this podcast and would like to find out more, you can head over to our website at that'snotcanon.com. If you simply want to support us and what we do, we would very much welcome your patronage at patreon.com forward slash that's not canon. 
Get your broadband moving all around your home so you can start flexing in the living room. And that sourdough can start rising in the kitchen. For streaming from the front door to the attic, connect with our best-ever Wi-Fi all around your home. Sky Broadband. Your world is limitless. For more information, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. OK, first day back. Are we ready to leave? School shoes on? Check. Coats and bags? Check. Smile on Aoife's face? Check. Smile on Sean's face? Check. Huge smile on Mum's face? Oh, yes! Woohoo! Let's go! School bags and school shoes from Littlewoods, Ireland. Back to school victory celebration from Mum. From Nike to Clark's, find the back to school brands you love at littlewoodsireland.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.